This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. In a democracy, government is supposed to reflect the will of the people. The most important way we ensure this is elections. If politicians aren't doing what the public wants, they get voted out, or so the theory goes. But we may also want to assess people's preferences directly. Elections only happen every few years, and politicians need to know what the public thinks, either so they can do their jobs well or so they can win the next election. And in some states, voters get to speak directly on the issues through ballot questions. But there's a problem. Polling is hard enough when you're just trying to figure out who people are going to vote for. It's even harder to figure out what the public actually wants. Sometimes people don't really know what they want, or they don't know how to express it, or they haven't thought clearly about which of the things they want are actually the most important to them. If you ever had trouble getting your friends to decide where to go to dinner, you understand the difficulty of accessing and analyzing preferences. But it's necessary in politics, and I have a lot of questions about the polling that's supposed to help us do it. So I invited two pollsters on the show today. Kristen Soltis-Anderson is the co-founder of the polling firm Echelon Insights, which primarily works with Republicans. She's a host on SiriusXM, and you can read her columns in the Washington Examiner and in her newsletter, Codebook. Hi, Kristen. Hi there. And Brian Stryker is a partner with ALG Research, which helps elect Democrats. Brian manages the firm's Chicago office, and he works with candidates in the Midwest and around the country. Hi, Brian. Hey. So if we want to know what people think about issues and which issues are important to them, Kristen, does it work to just ask them? Do people have good insight into that? There are a number of different questions that pollsters can use, and I think some are more valuable than others at getting at this. The most common one that you'll see in polls in media is the top issue question, where you present people with a list of things like the economy, cost of living, uh, jobs, immigration, et cetera, and you'll ask people to choose one. And I'm not a huge fan of that question because, first of all, it assumes people are kind of a single-issue voter. Um, it's nice because it's an indicator that we've got a lot of data for over time. You can typically track, but I think it's imperfect. And it also requires people to sort of pick one of the issues that you've presented. Um, if your top issue is monetary policy, that's probably not one of the things that's on the list that you're being provided that's by the pollster. <laughs> See, I knew <laughs> I'm, I'm catering to, to the crowd here. Um, the other way you can do it is you can ask people to give a level of concern for a variety of different issues. We've done this. We don't do it as often because it's more time consuming in a questionnaire, but you can say things like, uh, you know, are you extremely, very, somewhat, yeah, and so on, concerned about, and then give a, a series of, of issues. Um, but you can also just have conversations in qualitative settings, too, and hear what people surface on their own when they're talking, rather than giving them a constrained choice. Brian, how about you? What do you do if you're trying to figure out what people care about? Well, I do. I, I agree with Kristen on the flaws of giving people a list. There are benefits, of course, and sometimes we all ask it. The other thing that we often do is just ask them an open-ended question about sort of what is the number one thing you care about, and we can get um, uh, we can get the monetary policy aficionados here in that question. Um, it has its downsides too. There is no perfect way. I, I we do the question that that Kristen asked about a lot too, but. A lot of times the question we're trying to get at is, 
what do you care about a lot and so much it's going to change your vote, which is a really, really complicated thing. And and so, you know, one thing that Gallup does, one of my favorite questions that I'll look at and write about sometimes is they'll ask people what the most important issue, what, what the most important problem facing the country is. And uh, Kristen, to your point about, you know, the the issues that you really care about might not be on the list of prompts. They don't they don't give a list of prompts. They basically they take an open ended answer and then they sort of they try to figure out how to code, how to record what what question that is. What are what are the upsides and downsides of that kind of approach? The upside of that is that you can get something like government dysfunction that is pretty generalized that might not wind up on your list of questions, and you can see how that rises to the top. On the other hand, that's still pretty vague, and government dysfunction can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Someone can think the government is dysfunctional because the filibuster is preventing robust progressive reform from being implemented, and someone might think government dysfunction means the government is too invasive and their permitting process has been holding up their ability to get their small business started. So that's another, you know, downside is that it's still at one level kind of vague. You know, if you had a lot of bandwidth in your questionnaire, you could do what's known as a conjoint analysis. This is used in the marketing world a lot. You know, let's say you're a car manufacturer and you want to know which feature of a car is most important. You can ask people, well, which would you rather have, a car with a lot of cup holders or a car with, uh, you know, anti-lock brakes? And you can see if the cup holders trump anti-lock brakes. Um, but you ask it with a whole bunch of different features and you see which one tends to come out on top. And I think that could in some ways be a really interesting way to understand, okay, someone might say, you know, I'm worried about COVID, I'm worried about jobs, but really deep down, their number one voting issue might be something like abortion or immigration that they're not coming out and saying is their top issue, but it'd be hard for them to vote for a candidate with whom they disagreed on that question. And so, Brian, how do campaigns approach these issues? I mean, the, the, we sort of talked about here, you know, there's a lot of different ways you get at the question. And, and the, the implication is there's a lot of different possible answers that you can get. Um, and then I assume one, one issue is that also it's, you know, people, people have things that they want other than, you know, the correct answer. They have, you know, they, they have their own preferences. They want to get to that. So how do you, when, you, when you're actually trying to do this in a way that is, that is useful to the client, what, is, what does that look like? Well, that, that's a good question. And a lot of times, I mean, when you talk about, for example, polling on ballot measures, right, sometimes the ballot measure will be on something that's pretty obscure and that voters don't really care about. And so they want to sort of go show people, people really care about my land reform issue. And if only, you know, they hear this paragraph and that sort of stuff. <laughs> but, um, you know, that often is like right. not what meets reality. So I, I think... Um, it, it does end up being different for every campaign. I mean, one of the one of the challenges is time in a poll, right? We got to get it sort of done quickly. Some campaigns might not even ask a question like this, but I, I really think um, uh, the thing that we often end up doing is an open ended question, but then also some different forced choice questions on the issues of the day, whether that be closing schools, whether that be you know how to deal with inflation or or whatever else. Where when we want to get past that, uh, you know, just what's your most important issue, we might get at these um, really statement pair type things that really break down um, how people are thinking about the big issues, which side they fall on, 
and how intensely they're thinking about them. So we might ask, you know, do you kind of agree with this or do you really agree with it? Um, and that can get us a lot of these fault lines that are so important in campaigns. And, and so we've talked about this so, sort of in the context of a, of a survey, but I, am I right in thinking that there's sort of there's two main styles of this research? You're either doing surveys that are uh, telephone or internet, but it's a standard questionnaire, or you're doing focus groups where a smaller number of people have a more free-form conversation. What are the, what are the relative roles and, and uses of those? Those are the two main ones. We have some different types of hybrid things that we use where uh, they're online and they kind of take advantage. You can talk to more people. And then the open-ended question is a kind of another way where you don't necessarily have a focus group for a client, um, but uh, but uh, we can get to some of those qualitative, open-ended, hear people talk questions rather than just choice one versus choice two. And then, Kristen, what do you what do you use the like? What, why why do you do a focus group instead of a poll? What's what what are the different objectives? So a focus group, I think, is very valuable when a questionnaire would be hard to assemble because you you really have no sense of where to start. Um, a focus group is excellent for really open-ended conversations, very broadly. I just want to hear how people talk about an issue. They're great for understanding the language that people might use around something. Um, and it's interesting to hear people talk to one another in a focus group as well. As a moderator, I like to be as invisible as possible so that people can talk to one another and you can hear what those conversations sound like in hopefully as organic a form as you can. A survey though is good because even in a focus group of eight people, even if you've done a really good job of recruiting a broadly representative eight people, it's still just eight people. You do not have anything close to the statistical confidence that you need to make big decisions um, just from a single focus group of a couple people. And so you can use a survey. I usually will do a focus group first and then a survey second. Not always, but that that's more often the order I would do things in because you can use a survey then to test out those assumptions. Okay, six of the people in my focus group really liked this idea, but maybe there's six weird people. So let's find out in a survey if 60% or 70% of Americans or people in my target audience also agree with what they were saying. That's interesting because I, I think there's a lot of skepticism among the public about focus groups. I mean, the, the, the reputation, and, and tell me if this is unfair, is that basically you can get whatever answer you want out of a focus group, that focus groups are easily influenced by the moderator or they might be easily influenced by one loudmouth in the group um, who has some strong opinion and, and brings people along with them and that they sort of, you know, that, that, they're, that they're a tool that's easily abused. And so Kristen gives one uh, way that would be, you know, a check on that, which is basically you're using it to, to do preliminary research but then you have a, a survey that's supposed to substantiate the, the findings in a more scientific way. Brian, is that is that the check there or other things? Like, how, how can you tell if you're doing a good focus group, the sort of focus group that if you did it again and again, you would hope to get the same, the same result? Chris and I do this on different sides of the aisle, but we're not usually trying to get a result that we want. And if we could do that, out, if we want to do that out of a poll, we can easily do that. I mean, I could write a question that had you know, 80% of people agreeing with Democrats or Republicans on some particular issue by the way you uh, word it. And we could do that in a focus group. What we're usually trying to do is help somebody win an election, help somebody change a mind. And if we're coming into that, trying to show them that everybody agrees with them and all they have to do is say the thing that they want to say, like that's those aren't usually the people that uh, Krista and I uh, work for. So I think a lot of it is just as a researcher having a really open mind and hearing people say something that you really don't agree with, but you need to listen to it because uh, those are voters. Those are swing voters and you got to hear them. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You can make a survey or a focus group get you whatever results you want, but 
ideally, if you're serving your client best, you're giving them as accurate a reflection of reality as possible. And so, you know, I know there are times when focus groups are almost used for entertainment value. Um, I, I even very recently conducted a focus group sort of intended for public consumption. Um, my goal in that group was to get as much information from respondents as possible to highlight their thought process. I don't want to send them down any particular direction. Um, there's a line, I think, in Ocean's Eleven when they're training Matt Damon to be kind of a, a better con man. And they tell him, like, <laughs> you want to be, the, you, you want them to like you and then forget about you immediately. And that's kind of what you as a focus group moderator, you want to be. You want the respondents right. to like you, but then kind of forget that you're there and just have an open conversation about their views. And that's how you know you've succeeded. It, both of you referenced that you know you can write a biasing question to push people in either direction. That's not really what you want to do. How, how do you write a non-biasing question? I mean, especially when you have an issue that's fairly complicated, maybe a piece of legislation has a lot of different features. There's a lot of different reasonable seeming choices you could make about how to describe it or how to describe positions for and against it, how much detail to give. How do you how do you come up with a methodology there? I mean, what does it even mean to have an unbiased uh, answer is it that you're trying to replicate the set of biasing influences that voters will have as they go into the ballot box? Is that is that what it means to have an unbiased question? Well, a lot of times it does mean that is just getting both sides' best argument and not sort of your side's best argument and something weak on the other side or a kind of caricature of what I might write a caricature of what Republicans might say. That doesn't really help us. I think um, also a lot of it is just experience. In some ways, I know. Um, how not to push people one way by knowing how to push people, by learning from other surveys, how to persuade them, how to change their mind, what they will respond to. So when I want to do that in a survey, I'm trying to do that very intentionally. And when I don't want to do that, I often will just try and back out that language, use very neutral language. Another bias that pollsters are pretty familiar with that seems benign enough, but it, you know, can often, when you see those surveys that say, oh, 80% of people agree with my really obscure issue that they had never heard about before they heard the survey, <laughs> you know, acquiescence <laughs> bias. People like to say yes. They like to say they agree. They like to say they support something. Um, the bar is a little higher for someone to say, I disagree or I oppose in a survey. And so that's how you can wind up with 70% of people saying they support a position. And then in the very same survey, 70% saying they support something that sounds totally contradictory. So Brian mentioned it earlier, and it's a type of question that I've been using more and more, are these ones where you you try to present the two sides of the debate as honestly as possible. You will find in, in almost every other arena of political consulting, Republicans and Democrats do not interact or work with one another. But in the polling world, I do tons of projects where I'm partnered up with Democratic pollsters. And the reason why we do it is because I want to do accurate, unbiased research as much as possible. But if, for instance, I'm writing that question and I want to put the best version of the Democrats' argument against the best version of the Republicans' argument, even if I do my due diligence and I'm really trying my best to make it accurate, Brian might come in and say, you know what, a Democrat's never actually going to say that. Here's what a Democrat would say in this instance and can be a good check on the biases that I might have that I can't even see as a researcher. Is that though? Is is that an accurate reflection of the questions that voters are going to be faced with? Because I mean, you can, you can present someone with a fair and balanced argument that approximately reflects what each side would say if they had thirty seconds to make their pitch about the thing. But this person is going to go vote some months from now, not having just received those pitches. 
We don't know whether they're going to be thinking about this issue or, you know, what the influencing matters on it are going to be. And then also, you know, frankly, people are partisans. And so when you put them in this frame where it's like, here are the arguments, consider the arguments, decide what's best. In, in practice, when they vote, they're going to use party as a strong heuristic. They're going to have opinions about the people who are making the arguments on either side, and that's going to influence them significantly. So does that does that make this kind of research misleading? Is, the, is there a way to sort of to, to figure out those effects? Is it sometimes that you actually should tell people less about the substance of a question rather than more? Tell them more about, you know, who says this thing, which party says what? Yeah, no, a bunch of times we try and say less and then we might explain more as we go because um, they don't get as much information. And I, to your earlier point, people being partisans, we'll often do a survey where we'll give you know, a bunch of positive information about a Democrat, a bunch of negative information about a Republican. And at the end of the poll, the Democrats winning by 20 points or whatever. But that's not the real world. Like, first of all, people aren't going to sit down and listen to 10 minutes of your, you know, your, your spiel. Um, but also, um, they're going to hear it over months. And they're going to hear from people they trust that what you're saying isn't true, or there's another side to it, that sort of stuff. The, the reason you'd ask that kind of poll question would be like, you're trying to figure out which messages to put in an ad, which ones are effective. It's not that you're literally trying to create a situation where it's like, what if somebody heard nothing but negative attacks on this candidate? What what election result would that be? Right, exactly. And so then often we will have to, especially with new candidates or new campaign staff, we'll have to say, look, this is not reality. You're not going to win by 25, even though this number says this is in the in the this universe that isn't real. How many people even are open to changing their mind? Um, but knowing that all those people won't. So yeah, there is a little bit of uh, or well, a lot of letting the real world seep into your poll analysis and, and reading a poll through what you actually know happens in campaigns and how things play out. And then one other kind of bias that we got questions about, some some people who subscribe to the Very Serious newsletter, they sent in questions before before we recorded. And Pete Smith asks, says, you know, people are notorious for acting very differently than they claim they would when they respond to a survey. And some of that discrepancy is due to self-deception. Some of it is about embarrassment. Some is trying to avoid give the, giving the wrong answer. I, I, this, is, this is called social desirability bias, right? Or one part of that is that, you know, people, they, they think there's an answer they're supposed to give, and so they give it, but maybe that doesn't actually drive how they vote. So how do you, how do you adjust for that? Kristen? It's it's very challenging. It's something that for a long time, it, it wasn't as big of a deal to political pollsters. It was a much bigger deal if, say, you were doing government survey research for, you know, a, a health agency and you wanted to study, you know, the prevalence of dangerous behaviors that people didn't want to admit to, et cetera. Um, but in the political world, especially, you know, there's been so much talk about the shy Trump voter, but, but there is these days, uh, people do feel a little bit more like they have to walk around on eggshells. One trick that, I call it a trick, one question that pollsters can ask that I think sometimes gets overblown, but is is interesting nonetheless, is the, who do you think your neighbors are going to vote for question? Or, you know, those sorts of things where you're not asking someone to express their own opinion, you're letting them shift it off onto someone else. Um, it's not necessarily, I don't think, a perfect predictor of anything, but you give people questions, you make sure you've worded a question in a way that gives them permission to give the wrong answer. Let's pause for a second here. And then, Brian, I want to talk about some research you did after the Virginia governor's race. The memo you wrote about why Democrats lost that race has been circulated a lot. And I think it has a lot of good advice for the party. But I want to hear more about how you reached your conclusions.
I, I want to talk about some specific research that each of you has conducted in the last few months that, that tries to look at what people care about and how they feel about it and why. And we can, we can talk about how the research worked and, and what we can learn from it. And so, uh, Brian, let's start with you. You wrote a pretty bracing memo for Democrats uh, after their losses in Virginia in November. Virginia is, of course, a state where Democrats have been ascendant. Uh, they, they were not, you know, if you looked a few months before this election, people really didn't think the Democrats were in serious danger of losing. And then they, they lost the governorship. They lost control of one house of the state legislature. Um, and so before we talk about your research into why they lost, can you talk about what kind of research you did and who paid for it? Yeah, we did some uh, focus group research, uh, as we had talked about earlier, some focus groups with people who voted for Joe Biden and then voted for Glenn Youngkin as well, uh, paid for by Third Way, which is a, a Democratic sort of uh, center, left of center uh, think tank group. And, and so one of the conclusions that you draw in this memo and uh, ta- talking about the reasons that these swing voters, that they swung away from Democrats and picked Youngkin, you say education dominated, not so much critical race theory, which was a problem, but more broadly, parental control and shutdown. Swing voters didn't agree with what they thought as, of as the liberal position on race in schools, but it wasn't as salient as the fact they felt Democrats closed their schools and didn't feel bad about it. And, and so I guess my question is, how, how confident are you that this is the thought process behind voting? Voters. It, it's a good question. And we had, we did have a survey we did for a, a different group called DFER. And there was a statewide post-election survey that found similar things, a larger sample. So you try and get outside of the the, the six to eight weirdos, uh, you know, problem that Kristen was mentioning <laughs> earlier. Um, and uh, for what it's worth, we had thousands of interviews before the election that we were doing for another group in Virginia. Uh, but uh, we've also seen it in places around the country. We've seen it in uh, in Michigan. We've seen it here in Illinois, uh, you know, where I am in Chicago, where the schools just closed um, uh, and are back reopened. Um, so it was a sort of thing that I was probably less confident of the day or two after the election when these people were telling this to me in a focus group, but have sort of heard it reinforced over and over from swing voters around the country. And so one interesting thing about this finding is you say, you know, they, they didn't think Democrats felt bad about the school closures. And so, you know, what I, what I hear a lot from Democrats and from, from liberal commentators in the press is, you know, hey, the schools are back open. We want the schools open. Everyone wants the schools open. And so, but this, this is basically, this, this isn't d- directly a complaint about the position, although, I mean, Virginia did have unusually long school closures. So there obviously there is a substantive policy issue behind this. But what do you do about, like, you know, voters don't think that you cared about this. Voters don't think you felt bad about this. How, how, how do you address that if you're a candidate or a political party? I think, I mean, one thing I've been telling, telling my clients that are, you know, up for election in 22 is uh, to tell voters you care, to tell voters you want the kids in school, to have parents hear you say that it was bad, that it was a hard year, that you went through something tough. And even if you thought that was the right thing to do, to say, we know your kids lost ground. We know it made your work life harder. Uh, we know it put all of these things on you. Um, and I think that when voters hear that um, you are doing something with them rather than to them, um, they are much more likely to uh, to go through pain, even if that pain you know feels necessary. Kristen, what what do you make of, of of this sort of these you know I don't think you care type issues? It it, it has echoes to me of like I, what I think was a problem for Republicans in twenty twenty on COVID that, you know, Donald Trump maybe didn't seem like he cared about COVID. And that was a problem on top of any specific policy complaints that he had. And so, I mean, I guess Donald Trump is an unusual case. I come up with a long list of ways that Donald Trump could seem more caring. Um, but what do you what do you make of this sort of finding? And, and how do you re, how do you act in response to it? 
Well, I think some of the highest praise you can pay to a pollster on the other side of the aisle is to say, man, I hope nobody on their side of the aisle listens to this. <laughs> um, because I, when I read Brian's memo, I thought, well, he's figured it out. He's 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 got this pretty figured out. Um, you know, I've been doing surveys for the last two years for a group called the National Parents Union, which is a parent counterweight to unions. Um, in some ways, actually, a lot of the folks involved are, are, are relatively progressive, but they, they, they are pushed back against teachers' unions frequently. And so I've been doing this research on their behalf. And what we found was not that there were huge numbers of parents who were like, how dare you have closed the schools? I know there's a lot of attention that gets paid to kind of those voices, but a more most parents kind of fell into this bucket of saying, look, I get it. I'm scared for my kid. My kid can't get a vaccine yet. I'm worried about this too. So I get why we are in this challenging moment and I get why we as a parent are having to shoulder more of the burden in this challenging time. But I want to see that you are taking action to get us out of this. I want to see that you are doing things to get us to a place where things will be stable. And you won't just take for granted that I as a parent can drop everything and become halfway the teacher for the day. And so we would ask a lot, would you rather have schools be either all remote or all in person, whichever, but just pick one and be consistent? Or would you rather go back and forth based on whatever local conditions permit. And overwhelmingly, people said, like, just pick one. Hmm. Just pick something, and then I and my family can build our lives around this rather than jerking us around. And I actually feel like more of the political problem in the 2021-2022 school year is the jerking people around, oh, sorry, next week we're canceling classes because the teachers are getting a mental health day. You know, these are, again, the rare instances that just get a lot of attention and pop. But I think that sort of dismissal of, hey, people have lives too. Parents have lives too. I think that's the bigger problem than the uh, the real challenges of learning loss and all of the negative uh, consequences of of remote. I think parents would have said, "Look, we get that there's no perfect answer, but at least treat this in a way that you understand the burden that we are taking on as well." So, first of all, not everyone's listening to me. If that makes you feel better, but <laughs> I would say I think you're exactly right. And the picture I would draw of the swing voter parent is they are vaccinated. Their kid is probably vaccinated. Uh, they were sort of as we would all think about it, doing the right thing during the pandemic. They wore a mask. You know, they were careful. They, they, you know, did all these things. And now they have this added problem of feeling like, and these are Biden voters that we're talking about in this scenario, is anytime they say something that is like, well, aren't we going a little far? Can we not just get some consistency or any of that? Then they feel like they sound like they're, you know, the people that they were trying to do the thing and not be the anti-vax, the sort of hardcore, you know, uh, anti-COVID Trump types. Mm -hmm. And so that is another like complex psychology that we were pushing these people into and they don't like it, and they're mad, and they're just kind of tired of all this. Another example, Josh, of, of the way someone can convey that they care is, let's go back to the Virginia race. Something that Glenn Youngkin ran on there was a repeal of Virginia's grocery tax. And and his opponent said, look, great, you're going to save, what, two, three cents on a gallon of milk? You know, big, <laughs> big deal. Like, this isn't going to actually save the average family a whole lot of anything. But here was what we were seeing in polling was a lot of people's number one issue was I am freaked out that cost of living is going up, that, you know, I haven't worried about inflation in decades and now suddenly it seems like it's here. And so something like, hey, I'm going to repeal the grocery tax 
Is it going to make a huge difference in people's bottom lines? I, I don't know, but it's, it is, hey, I want to do something on this issue. I hear you. I hear that this is a problem. Here is a lever that I have as someone in government that could, could help on this. I think that is another way you can say, hey, I care. There's another aspect of, of, of your memo, Brian, from, the, from these, uh, this Virginia focus group that I thought was interesting. You're talking about people reacting to Democrats basically saying they seem so focused on diversity and fairness, and, and, that, and that's fine, but it doesn't seem like they're focused on helping people, which I think, first of all, is, is an interesting distinction, right? Because in, in theory, diversity and fairness are both you know, aspects of trying to help people. Um, but it also, I, 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 sort of, I see implicitly there, it's sort of like they're not focused on helping me. And I'm wondering about what that means for the, the politics of these issues where, you know, you t we talk about, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or we talk about, you know, the need to, to address racial inequities. There, there's two possible things I see in here. One is, one is you hear voters saying, well, it seems like you're so focused on that, you're not going to focus on some other thing that I care about. But this also feels like sort of like a soft way of saying, I disagree with this concept of fairness and equity that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not so concerned about some of these racial issues, that sort of thing. But people don't want to say that out loud. And so they say, you know, gee, do we really need to put so much attention on this? So what, what do you what do you think it means when people say that sort of thing? So I I really don't take it as that. So I think um, okay. we've heard the same stuff from black voters. I, I don't think this is a coded dog whistle type thing. And this is this is um, I, okay. I think you've seen David Shore and others sort of talk about this, about um, when you frame things in terms of uh, fairness uh, and, sort of you know, uh, underrepresented groups getting a better share among black voters. They don't respond to that message as well. And a lot of times they just want help. Like people hmm. just want help. They want their lives made better. And none of these, and these were Biden voters we were talking to in these focus groups to take it back to that. Um, none of none of them were saying, and none of them felt like, I think this is a thing as a trained moderator, you can usually read if somebody's like, doesn't want to say the thing, but they think it. But I, I didn't get any like, what about us? You know, what about sort of white okay. suburbanites? It was very much like, you just seem to not be doing the things that really could make an impact in people's lives, including mine. Whereas the grocery tax was a great example of one where they said, hey, this guy's going to try and put a couple bucks in people's pockets and, and help them out. Yeah, I, 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 that doesn't surprise me. I, I think people are less, I mean, certainly in, in a focus group setting, but I think generally they just want, they're focused so on themselves and, and what's going on in their world. I think this is just broadly something that people outside of the polling world kind of miss when they're thinking about like, what does the average voter think? Most human beings spend a lot of their time focused on what's going on in their world with their family. They are not you know, thinking like, you know, six moves down the chessboard or what's this online thing that's blown up or what's that, like none of that. And so what I love about being a pollster is it's very clarifying about what people are focused on and what they are not focused on. And what they are focused on is themselves. <laughs> Uh, and and th there's one more bef before we move on from Virginia. There's there's one more interesting aspect of the conclusions in in your memo, Brian, which which is or well, there's many interest, but there's one other interesting aspect that that I want to talk about, uh, which is that in terms of action suggestions, it, I I you know since it was third, this research was for third way. You sort of expect third way to you know have sort of you know let's move to the center in various ways, but it it really seemed like that wasn't the key takeaway. It was that voters don't feel like Democrats are focused on inflation and shortages and and labor shortages 
shortage issues and other sort of like really acute economic issues right now. And they just want to see something done on that. Like, for example, you said, you know, it's the they, they didn't they didn't want the Build Back Better bill to be bigger or smaller. They didn't like have a too far left, too far right view. They just wanted a sense that the Democrats were like really focused on doing something about this at the national level. So, again, what does that what does that look like? There's no federal grocery tax. So what do you what do you do if you're the Biden administration? And that's the that's the piece of feedback you have. Some of the things that really come to mind for me is uh, the China competitiveness mill, some of the stuff sort of taking on some of the global supply chain issues, bringing manufacturing home, bringing supply chain home, uh, helping people with the cost of living. Uh, some of those things can be around uh, drug cost is a big one that we really see people fired up about that was part of Build Back Better and sort of taking on the drug companies to put more money in your pocket. I, I really think it is those cost specific things potentially childcare to some of these parents, but really those things that where you can put, I, I, I say it as you can help people keep more of what they earned, right? And that seems, that's really what they want to be able to do in this world where their costs are going out of control. I don't even think that's just a tax issue. That's like prices they're paying at the pump and everywhere else. They're just not able to keep what they earn. Okay, Kristen, let's talk about your recent focus group research with Republicans about January 6th. Uh, and this was done in partnership with Public Consumption and The New York Times. Recently, they published a transcript of a session you moderated with Patrick Healy, one of the opinion editors at The Times. Uh, by the way, we will link to this so listeners can read through the transcript. It's interesting to see the responses and seeing what we're discussing here be put into practice. So there were two parallel focus groups, Democratic and Republican. And one interesting finding came when you asked each group to list important things that happened in the last year. Democrats are much more likely than Republicans to name January 6th as one of the important things. Uh, but there's another point later in the focus group where Patrick Healy asks this question. He asks, show of hands, how many of you believe Joe Biden won the election fair and square? And then only one of the eight participants raises their hand and says yes. Is this a good question? What does fair and square mean? It's a challenging thing to ask because I think there's a lot more nuance under the surface than if you just say, well, seven in eight Republicans think the election was stolen. I mean, there's certainly some folks in that group that do think that like en masse, uh, Donald Trump really would have won the election. But, you know, you had one woman in the group, I think, talk about things like, oh, I saw some clips online of some ballots getting, you know, added in or ballots getting thrown out. And that had me concerned. And so it is it for a lot of folks, it's just that that seed of doubt that's planted by something, even something that could be true or have some tiny kernel of truth in it that they can like hang on to to say, and I think it links up with the, well, I don't know anybody who voted for the other person. So this outcome can't possibly be right. Look, I mean, one of the things you hear you heard in the group, nobody went to Joe Biden rally. So who are all these? you know, 80 million people that voted for him if no one went to his rallies is the kind of thing that that Republicans, you know, will say just this, it, that to them, they just couldn't fathom why someone would have voted for Joe Biden. And therefore, to hear that not only did millions, but but millions more than voted for their own candidate do it, that's why it's so easy for them to grab onto kind of any kernel of anything that they are told that sows doubt about what happened, it, because it makes them go, okay, well, that actually lines up more with how I think I see the world. 
But I mean, it's, it's, it's broader than that, right? Because it's not just, you know, if you say, I don't think the election was fair, you could mean, you know, I think there was a, a Venezuelan conspiracy to hack the voting machines and change the vote totals, or I think they stuffed the ballot boxes. But it could also mean like, you know, the media was very unfair to Donald Trump and, and the right. bias changed how, how people voted. Uh, or, you know, the social media companies should not have moderated in the way they moderated. And it sort, it sort of reminds me of a lot of the questions that you could ask Democrats about the uh, about the 2016 election over the last four years, which is, you know, you could say, you know, was it was Donald Trump legitimately elected? And you'd get, you know, clear majorities saying no among Democrats. But that doesn't mean that Democrats mostly were saying that the election was rigged. They were saying, I think the Electoral College is unfair uh, or I think the media spent too much time covering Hillary's emails or, or you know, even like I think the Russian influence campaign affected how people voted and changed the vote outcome. And so, Brian, I don't know, because it's it sort of, it, it gets into a lot of these questions that we ask lately, sort of trying to figure out, you know, how how divided the country is, what what level of trust people have in these institutions. And I, I think it can sometimes be kind of hard to get at what people really mean when they say that the system isn't fair. They can mean different things that are, you know, illegality or, or not, um, that have all sorts of different implications. It can, it can. And one question I've seen, and I'll paraphrase it, that is, uh, a, a little more scary to me is the number of people who say something like, sometimes you need to commit violence to get the right result right? In, an, you know, in an election, something like that. And that number keeps going up and up and up. And so I think um, the system isn't fair or it's a rigged game or that sort of stuff can mean a lot of things. But I think that's the thing where you see sort of this, this escalation of people saying, comma, and the answer might be to kill somebody. Right, but that, that, that question, it was like, is, is, it, is violent action against the government ever justified? Our country was founded on violent action against the government. Oh, I'm kind of trying to pull it up as we talk, but the question I was thinking of was something like, with the way people don't listen to us now, we might need to resort to violence or something like that. Uh, uh, oh, that sounds but- bad. Yeah, sorry. Not <laughs> One other thing that, you know, to the to the question about the election is I wonder how much of this is uh, a long term trend line that's been building. How much of this is stuff that's been in the works or been growing for years and years? And how much of this is really COVID specific? In that New York Times focus group, one of the, the things that, that was mentioned and that got a couple of head nods was somebody said, look, the reason why I think all of this COVID stuff continues to get blown up. And and remember, there was a lot of talk that once Biden took office, that suddenly the dynamic would flip. And would it be Republicans who were always, you know, freaking out about case counts and suddenly for Democrats, they would never talk about it anymore. And and that that flip-flop didn't totally happen. And so for these Republicans in the group, some of them said, I think the reason why Democrats still keep the sirens on about COVID is they want to use it to justify all sorts of other changes that benefit them, including changes to the electoral system like expanded mail-in voting. That was explicitly something they were saying in the groups. And so I do wonder, too, to this question of do you think the election was fair, how many people are responding with, I think some of these changes that were put into place as a result of COVID seem unnecessary to me? I, I found the the question, at least one of the, and I know there's been a bunch of different poll questions on this, but there was a question in the Washington Post. It was a poll with the University of Maryland uh, conducted in mid-December. And the question was, do you think it is ever justified for citizens to take violent action against the government or is it never justified? And and 34% said, yes, it is. It can be justified. 62% said no. And I'm, you know, I think if you really think about the question, the 62% are clearly wrong. But I think this also gets at something about, about question design, which is when you ask people this question, they're not, they're not answering it like a political science question. 
question. They're not sitting back and thinking, well, gee, is there ever a circumstance in which it is appropriate for people to overthrow a government? They, they're taking it as a question, well, I mean, they, they can take it in different ways, but it's, it's, it, they're putting it in the context of the United States now, and they're taking it basically, you know, you could say it, you know, are these, you know, are these maniacs who, who overran the Capitol building, are they maniacs or did they maybe have a point? Or like, there's, that's, that's one thing that I think a respondent is likely thinking about here. But that gets it. That's the difficulty of designing some of these issue questions, right? I mean, I feel I felt like during the Trump era, there were so many poll questions that people, you know, they, they took them and really they, they reduced the answer to do I like Donald Trump or not? Donald Trump says something about something and then they give a poll answer around it. That's basically like if they like Trump, then they then they agree. And if they dislike Trump, they say disagree. It could make it hard if you're actually trying to understand un- opinions about underlying things, right? Because people are, th- this is an example of a question, people are definitely reading something into the question text that is not there. And maybe they have a pretty good reason to read that in because the press coverage has been around, like, basically, you should have been reading that in. And if you said yes to this, you're basically saying that, like, what happened with the Capitol riot was okay. Well, I could read, I found the questions I was talking about. So one was, given politicians are ignoring the people and not even fairly counting their votes, I can understand why people are reacting with violence to protect their constitutional rights and freedom. And this was in January of 21, and 31% agreed. And then we did the same lead-in about given people are ignoring the, given politicians are ignoring people and not counting their votes, it might be necessary to use violence and protect our constitutional rights and freedom. 23% agree with that. So those are sort of, you know, in the here now, a lot more people sort of Lower numbers, but still, um, you know, 23% of 300 million is large. But that's interesting. You're, you're giving a factual premise there. I mean, it's a factual premise I wouldn't agree with. Correct. So, like, how does that how does that influence, you know, the, I mean, you're telling, basically, the, the question starts by telling people the election's rigged, right? Like, that's going to affect the answers you get. I think, uh, in that case, again, that's the sort of thing where I think you've got to use a little bit of, uh, we would sort of judge it and say, the people that agreed with that statement all already believe the election was rigged. We sort of look in the crosstabs, but this is not the sort of thing that like okay. you would, for example, say, well, yes, that's true because I also, now that you've said this, believe the election was rigged. Like I, that's a sort <laughs> of like, that's a little bit more of a deeply held belief than, um, you know, going back to the earlier discussion, uh, you know, what do you think about this issue you have never thought about and now you're 70% likely to agree with? Uh, we have uh, one reader who, who writes in and, you know, I, I think one thing that listeners are hoping to get out of this is to be able to read a poll a little more critically and try to figure out better, you know, what it means about what the public actually thinks. Are there some red flags that people should look for if they pick up a survey result and they see it and say, oh, gee, you know, maybe maybe I should be cautious about about believing what I'm looking at here? What's what's a marker of, of a poll question that you should not put too much stock in? One thing that I, I always encourage people to be careful about is reading too much certainty into a poll or drawing too many conclusions from very minor differences. I think something like margin of error is just generally not well understood. And, and I don't want to like give people a big lecture on it right now. But sometimes, and, and this for me is a very instant red flag, is if somebody has released a poll result and they are releasing down to like the 10th place decimals, <laughs> that yes. drives me nuts because you are talking talking about something that is is imprecise and generally will have a margin of error of two to five, I mean, depending on what your sample size is. So to give that little tenth place is just silly. And so then people are like, oh my gosh, 72.6% of people believe X. And it's like, oh no. So if you see the decimal place, like that's a big red flag. But additionally, if somebody's like, oh, you know, 70% of people believe X and it's, it's up to 75% among, you know, uh, Hispanic voters, 
okay, that's also like, let's not read too, too, too much into it. That may be the finding, but that's where I think people sometimes can get led astray. It's not that the poll itself is fraudulent, but it's that sometimes small differences can get blown up to be big headlines in a way that the data just don't justify. Like maybe there's 70 Hispanic voters in the sample and like the the difference right. in the numbers is just random variation. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's useless. It doesn't mean it's not an interesting guidepost at a big level, but it means that that 5% difference isn't really something you should lose sleep over. How about you, Brian? What should people watch out for in your view? Well, I, I think a lot of it is about having uh, having trusted sources and having a good list of people. So for I think, it, and it's less about accuracy almost because I think a lot of it is we can really subtly manipulate things in ways that are way outside of the margin error. So I really look for trusted sources. I mean, Kristen is someone that I've, I've known of and known for a while who, if I see something is probably playing it straight, you know, and trying to trying to um, really find out what's going on. And there are many- Thank you, Brian. <laughs> of course. Uh, there are many Republican pollsters. I also think that of. There are also Democratic pollsters that I don't think that of. So I think that it's, it's really important to sort of um, uh, go to trusted sources for journalists to do do their jobs and, and make sure they're sort of being digging into polls and, and making sure that that they're really what the pollster says they are. And uh, a lot of times, the, I think the media polls are also very very high quality. The sort of you know, national media brands do a really good job of, of polling. So I think the, the source is really important because, frankly, the, the ways in which it is pretty easy to manipulate things. Um, if you've really been doing this for a long time, are pretty subtle and hard to catch a lot of times. Uh, so it, it's very hard. Uh, let's leave it there for this week. Kristen Soltis-Anderson is the co-founder of the polling firm Echelon Insights. You can hear her on SiriusXM. You can read her columns in the Washington Examiner and in her excellent newsletter, Codebook. And we'll link to Codebook in the episode description. And Brian Stryker is a partner with ALG Research, which helps elect Democrats. He manages the firm's Chicago office. He works with candidates in the Midwest and around the country. And if you want to read his post-Virginia memo, you can also find a link to that in the episode description. Brian and Kristen, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having us. Thanks. This was great. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. If you would like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious Newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me, special access to our Very Serious community, and like I said, the first opportunity to suggest questions that may come up in these podcast interviews. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. The Very Serious newsletter can be found at joshbarrow.com. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.